Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast series focusing on critical business decisions. Brought to you by Brady Ware and Company. Brady Ware is a regional, full-service accounting and advisory firm that helps businesses and entrepreneurs make visions a reality. And welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast giving you, the listener, clear vision to make great decisions. In each episode, we discuss the process of decision-making on a different topic. Rather than making recommendations because everyone's circumstances are different, we talk to subject matter experts about how they would recommend thinking about that decision. My name is Mike Blake, and I'm your host for today's program. I'm a director at Brady Ware & Company, a full-service accounting firm based in Dayton, Ohio, with offices in Dayton, Columbus, Ohio, Richmond, Indiana, and Alpharetta, Georgia, which is where we are recording today. Brady Ware is sponsoring this podcast. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on your favorite podcast aggregator, and please also consider leaving a review of the podcast as well. So our topic today is uh, sustainability programs, and um, whether the the issue or the conversation has revolved specifically around global climate change, whether it has been around local pollution, whether it's been about uh, economic sustainability and recycling materials, whether it's been about land conservation some element of the environmental movement and by extension sustainability i think is in everybody's corporate is everybody's uh, uh consciousness um and you know maybe it's considered polarizing maybe it's not but it's not something that nobody has uh, an, an opinion on and there's a sense that companies have at a minimum all companies have an opportunity to be constructive in terms of, of environmental sustainability and how they impact the environment and what their footprint looks like and are they reinvesting back what they're taking out of the environment to conduct their commerce. And then I think where there's a disconnect is what is the obligation of the corporation to somehow either ameliorate the impact that they, they themselves have on the environment or even to be a net positive contributor to the environment, even beyond whatever impact that they have. And I don't think it's fair to say that there's a right or a wrong answer to the question. But if you're a business leader, you're faced with the question of, should we be doing something to be promoting the environmental, ecological sustainability of our business? Should we be doing more than we're already doing? Or in some cases, are we doing too much? Should we be scaling it back? Because there, there can be a cost to this, at least in the short term. And, and that's particularly noteworthy in the, in the public markets where uh, the public markets reward investors and frankly, they reward managers based on short-term metrics and short-term gains much more than they do long-term metrics and long-term gains. And so to some extent, there actually can be a fundamental financial and economic disconnect that maybe otherwise prevents some behavior that managers, in fact, would like to do, but somehow feel constrained. And so the decision really is then put before us as business leaders is, should we be thinking about the environment more? Should we be thinking about, about the environment around us, not just as a, as, a, as a publicity exercise, but is this something that we can and should be building into our business plan? And most importantly, we're often told that there's a, there's a palpable cost. There's a trade-off that, well, you know, you can be, you can, you can plant some trees, you can save a polar bear, you can help rising sea levels, but this is going to cost you something to do that. 
And maybe we're going to challenge a little bit of that perception today, or maybe we're going to confirm it. Um, and that's about as much as I know. So I'm going to stop talking about that myself and bring on our guest. I'm very pleased to introduce Troy Van Otnott. Troy is the CEO of Massive Technologies, a clean technology and sustainability consulting company here in Atlanta, Georgia. Massive Technologies serves as a consultant to renewable energy and sustainability-focused companies. The company also facilitates sustainable mineral and fuel commodity transactions on behalf of a large Chinese investment bank helping to mitigate their pollution and climate change challenges, which we know are myriad and we probably don't know the full story because they're not exactly the most transparent country in the world when it comes to their own, uh, their own issues. Troy is also ambassador for Cleantech Open, a national nonprofit program that encourages entrepreneurs to develop technologies to address environmental sustainability challenges. Troy, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for coming on. Hey, it's great to see you, Mike. So we almost missed the podcast because we were talking so much before the podcast. You got so many interesting things to talk about. And I'm going to dive right into what was a, a fascinating backstory that I did not know. How did you become engaged as you have been with sustainability? This is not something you necessarily grew up from as a kid thinking, I've got a, this is my thing, right? <laughs> no, not at all. In fact, I'm, I'm from New Orleans. And as you know, Louisiana is one of the largest uh, oil and gas production states in, in the America and, um, you know, a, a petrochemical production center as well. And so, you know, being an environmentalist in Louisiana is uh, is kind of weird, and uh, you, you're thought of as a bit of an outlier. Small club, right? Yeah, and so it's not something that um, I ever thought about um, being involved in. You know, most of my adult life, I, uh, as I was mentioning before the podcast began, I, I uh, spent most of my life doing event production. Um, uh, New Orleans produces a lot of events, and um, I was enjoying that that career. Um, but in 2005, uh, my world and, and uh, all my fellow citizens in New Orleans' worlds changed um, due to you know, the impacts of Hurricane Katrina. And, um, you know, we lost um, a lot. We lost over 2,000 lives, um, billions of dollars of property value, and um, I personally lost um, uh, an entire career. And so uh, it was at that moment that uh, it made me start to reflect and think about why was this particular storm um, more damaging, more impactful than than others? And after doing a substantial amount of research, I, I started to understand a little bit more about um, global climate change, and and felt like um, I needed to, you know, direct my talents and my skills um, to try to, you know, play a small role and and do something um, to have an impact and try to rebuild the city in a, in a more sustainable way. And I mean, it really was a much more impactful storm because let, let's face it, New Orleans gets hurricanes, right? I imagine, I don't know, I grew up in Boston, we get one hurricane every 20 years and it's a category one. I imagine New Orleans, it's, you know, wake me when it's a category four and then I'll start to get excited. Absolutely. The complacency for Hurricane Katrina um, was staggering. In fact, um, on a personal basis, my my sister and my uh, niece and nephew um, were very complacent. And as much as I had a bad feeling about this one and begged them to leave with me, they decided to stay. And uh, for about two weeks after the storm uh, landed, uh, they were lost, lost in the system. And I, I thought they were dead because the ranch home that they were living in in a suburb of New Orleans um, had about three feet of water over its roof line. 
And fortunately, they were able to swim uh, to the only two-story home on their street and were rescued by helicopters. You probably remember those images from television. So um, it was, you know, personally a devastating experience and literally made me just want to completely change gears, switch direction and try to, you know, see if I can add value to, you know, figuring out solutions and, um, you know, become a part of the solution instead of a part of the problem. So I'll interject. Um, they said that, that they said that, that humor is, is tragedy plus timing. Uh, we were talking about this before and I, I thought I was in Connecticut when this happened. I was not. We'd actually just moved to Atlanta and when Katrina happened, it occurred at the same time as Dragon Con happened. And I remember, I remember being at, at Dragon Con. For those of you not in Atlanta, that's basically our Comic Con. So if you're into dressing up as a Wookiee, Dragon Con is for you, right? <laughs> Labor Day weekend. And uh, I'm, I was actually at a, I was actually at a bar. I was not in costume. I don't do that, that, that. And, but there are actually a couple of, of folks that had fled the city. And I was sitting next to this guy and he was, you know, we're, we're watching on the TV as they're doing, just as you said, they're pulling people out. And, and here's a guy, his, his life is completely uprooted. He's watching it being uprooted in real time. And in the background behind him, there are stormtroopers. There are people in Star Trek uniforms, <laughs> Battlestar Galactica, Japanese anime, um, everything, you know, hey, everything you can possibly imagine. I'm thinking, boy, this, this, this poor guy next to me must think he cannot catch a break in any, <laughs> either that or he thinks he actually fell asleep somewhere on the road. Right. And he's still dreaming. It was a, a very odd juxtaposition. So, it's so not, you, by the way, not quite as odd as you being a, a esteemed accountant by day, father of dragons by night. So. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So, um, uh, so, so you, you had, you had this shift and made a huge impact on you and, and was your family okay, by the way? I didn't ask you about yeah, that. Yeah, everyone, everyone survived and, you know, lost property, but, uh, you know, property can be replaced. In fact, that's exactly what the first thing I did is I started working with the, uh, local, uh, city planning commission to work on, um, building code improvements because we needed to, build structures that we're going to be able to sustain a category four or category five storm. We don't have a lot of those uh, structures in New Orleans. You know, we've yep. got hundred, 150 year old structures, you know, that actually did survive the, the wind loads from the storm, but didn't survive um, being submerged in 12 feet of water for, you know, two to three weeks. So, um, you know, I started building um, sustainable housing. We, we created a modular home company and um, was very successful. And ironically, I wanted to, uh, I wanted to try to build a highly efficient and energy efficient home. And we, we accomplished that after a couple of iterations working with our manufacturer. But, um, I got to a point where I couldn't, um, make the home any more energy efficient, um, without adding some form of renewable energy. And so I started doing some research and looking for a solar energy company. And lo and behold, there was not one in the entire state. So I started researching why that was the case. You know, why is California, why is you know, New York and Northeast um, leading in the early stages of solar um, energy development? But we weren't. I mean, we're an energy production state, but we're producing fossil fuels, not clean energy. And that didn't make any sense to me. So I, I worked with a group of um, of caring and passionate environmentalists, and we actually drafted a um, a bill, which was a, the Louisiana Renewable Energy Tax Credit Bill. And when I say we had no idea what we were doing, um, we really didn't know what we were doing. But we were, you know, uh, bull in China cabinets and we were, you know, just committed to getting it done. And at the end of the day, um, at the next legislative session, we wound up passing a clean energy bill 
that in, in recent memory, none of the politicians could remember when a bill actually passed unanimously hmm. in the state legislature. They thought it was like a, a unicorn. It didn't exist. And so I remember getting a call from the governor's office after the bill passed, and they said, well, look, you're the lead guy working on this bill. You need to come to the state treasurer and meet with him. And I said, well, what did I do? And he's like, well, you need to tell the government how much money this tax bill is going to cost our state treasury. And I, I literally said, I have no idea. And they're like, well, you better figure it out because you did this bill. <laughs> so I go to the state treasurer's office two days later, and they said, okay, how many uh, individuals, homeowners, are likely to put solar panels on their house? And I just kind of came up with a number and literally out of the air. And the guy was writing on a, on a, on a notepad and he's like, okay, so that is equivalent to about $500,000. Does that sound right? I said, sounds great to me. And so he's like, boom, stamp. It's good. Governor will sign it tomorrow. I'm like, does this really happen? And he's like, yeah, it's happening. And so two days later, after the governor signed it, I get a phone call. It was from a, a 303 area code and, uh, it was a guy named Shane. And he's like, hey, uh, are you the guy that did the renewable energy tax credit bill? And I was like, uh, yeah. And I was like, did I do something wrong? He's like, no, you did something extraordinary. I was like, what do you mean? He goes, do you know you passed the most aggressive state tax credit in the United States for re renewable energy? I said, I did. He's like, yeah. You know, California has about a 10% tax credit. You have a 50% tax credit. How did you do that? I was like, I don't know. He said, what business are you in? I'm like, I build energy efficient houses. He's like, you're not in that business anymore. I said, I'm not. He said, no. I'm like, what business am I in? He says, you're in the solar business now. I'm coming to see you tomorrow. And I was like, okay. Guy gets on a plane, comes to meet me at the local hotel on Canal Street. And after about six hours, he, he said, hey, I'm with a company called SunPower. We're one of the biggest brands of solar panels in the world. And you're now our partner in Louisiana. And literally within a week, we formed a company called South Coast Solar. And within about six months, it went from me, my old friend Tucker Crawford, and a solar expert named Scott Oman, and a part-time accountant operating in my friend's second bedroom, to a downtown office with about 10 employees and about 3 to $4 million in sales. And you know, within two years, we became the largest clean energy company in the Southeast. And you know, it was a, it was a really interesting and wild ride. And um, uh, you know, we got indoctrinated into, into the national scene because people were just so excited to see someone outside of California or the Northeast actually develop a sustainable clean energy, um, you know, business industry. And so we were really proud of what we did with South Coast Solar. So that, that segues perfectly in the next question. And, and that is that, especially here in the Southeast, red state heaven, um, there's a perception and really, I think, kind of a knee-jerk reaction about when you say sustainability, you're you're kind of bracing yourself for pushback, argument, lots of questions. I mean, yeah. as it turns out, I drive electric, and I still remember one of the first times I drove outside of Atlanta. I went to a hotel to ask if there's a place to to plug in my car. They said no, <laughs> but they said no in a way that said that they didn't. Their eyes said comrade. <laughs> <laughs> at the end, right? Go back to Russia, basically. Right. And, and I think we still, I still think we, we face a lot of that in, in certain sectors. And, and I got to imagine you face some of that in Louisiana, right? Especially a fossil fuel state. Talk about entrenched interests. You know, it's funny. Um, 
I had a very uh, close friend who was actually the CEO of of Entergy, which is the dominant um, en- energy company in, in New Orleans. And um, you know, this is a, a friend that used to sit on my sofa and play Madden football with me. And so now he's running, you know, the biggest utility company in the South uh, at that time. And he said, "Hey." I'm supportive of what you're doing. I want you to know that. He goes, but you guys have got to get your cost in line because solar is way too expensive and we can't buy any of it. Well, you know, flash forward 13 years later and they're still singing that same tune, right? So it's, and ironically, um, you know, what's happened in Georgia regarding um, uh, Georgia Power and Southern Company is, you know, when I first moved here in 2010, they were... um not very supportive of the solar energy industry. In fact, you know, it almost felt like they were running disinformation campaigns um, to suggest that clean energy doesn't even work in Georgia. But at the end of the day, what all these utilities come to the realization is they have an obligation to their ratepayers to buy the cheapest form of energy that offers the most stability um, and that their ratepayers desire. Right. Those, those are the three things. But number one is cost. Right. So in 2018, solar is by far the cheapest energy, uh, outside of coal, natural gas, nuclear. It, it blows them all away. The only thing that's cheaper than that is wind, but we don't have a lot of onshore wind, uh, in, in this part of the country. So, so now, even though, you know, Georgia is not a renewable portfolio state, there's no mandate by the government to do this. Georgia Power, with the help of the Public Utility Commission, winds up buying a substantial amount of, of solar. You know, we have a problem. It's a problem, but it's also a blessing that, you know, Atlanta's called a city in the forest because there's so much tree cover that it's almost impossible to find a home that's not surrounded by 40 or 50 foot pine trees. Right. 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 And in, so you can't get a direct, direct line to the sun. So you have massive shading issues everywhere. So while there's very little residential solar in the market, in fact, I think in the entire state, only 40 homes last year, put solar on their houses. Okay. But utility scale solar has taken off. In fact, I, I, I help, um, I helped Georgia Power put together a uh, construction team to build 17 solar farms just last year. So, you know, the fact is, is that they are now moving towards, um, you know, greening their own grid and they're doing it because, not because it's green, not because it's sustainable, because it's the lowest form of, of stable energy that they can offer their ratepayers. Have, I'm, and I'm curious, have they crossed the one gigawatt of capacity yet, solar? They have. Okay. Yeah, in fact, the, the PUC um, just put out a new uh, directive for them to buy, I think, another 1.6 gigawatts over okay. the next few years. So while while that's a, a decent amount of, of, of clean energy, I mean, it pales in comparison to what's happening, you know, in California, pales what's happening up in the Northeast. But – you know, it's so much better than what it was five, six, seven years ago, right? So at the end of the day, if you, if you pull the ratepayers and ask them what form of energy, you know, do you want coming into your, into your home or your business? 80% of them will say, give me the clean stuff, right? I don't want the coal because I don't want my kid, you know, suffering from asthma, right? Um, natural gas, that's better. You know, it's a transition. It's a bridge fuel. Let's let's do that because we don't want to have coal. The nuclear is just so expensive; it's almost impossible to get a plant up and operating. And then you know, talk about you know annual maintenance and then decommissioning, which never gets into the economic model, which is kind of crazy to me. But at the end of the day, you know, 
cities and states are taking the lead in the clean energy transformation. And there's over 125 cities in the United States now that have mandated 100% clean energy sometime between 2035 and 2050. So it's coming, and it's coming a lot faster than most people ever thought it would. So so you bring up an interesting point, and, and I think if I'd asked this question five years ago, the answer would have been very different. Um, what percentage of the, of the sustainability program question now is being driven purely by economics, where it, it's a more manifestly positive business case, as opposed to, for whatever reason, we feel it's the right thing to do case? I would say 100% of it is, because at the end of the day, the definition of sustainability is having a business that will be around, right? Yep. And so what sustainability ultimately means is is driving down cost of your operation, right? And so when you talk about greening your supply chain, are you talking about, you know, um, more efficient lighting? Are you talking about clean energy? All of those things have a return on investment, right? So at the end of the day, in order to be sustainable means you have to be able to turn a profit, and the only way you can turn a profit is to manage your operational cost. And everything that happens, whether you're recycling, reusing, um, using smarter forms of energy, more efficient forms of energy, um, dealing with your, your waste issues in a more sustainable way, it's all about saving money. And almost every single, um, you know, sustainability officer at any smaller, midsize, or even large corporations here in Atlanta will tell you, it's, it, this is not about politics. This is not about green versus, you know, red. This is about, you know, being green to make green. And so if you think about it from that standpoint, everyone should be doing it because if you don't manage to, to be profitable, you're not going to be around to even have this discussion later down the road. So I want to, I want to uh, go to, the, go to the flip side now. You know, as, as I mentioned, we're, we're in a red state. There are a lot of red states around us. Um, and you and I are of roughly the same age. I was not a voting age when Jimmy Carter was president, but I do remember, I do remember the whole sweater thing, turn the thermostat down, the 55 mile an hour speed limits and so forth. But then it was because you just, we just couldn't buy the oil we wanted, sure. right? It was scarcity there. And, and, you, and everybody man. mocked the solar panels on top of the White House. The first thing Ronald Reagan did was take, take them, them down, down, supposedly. Yep. yep. Um, in, in a conservative environment, has the risk of of stigmatizing yourself by seeing by being seen as too green and hippie and whatnot is that no longer a concern is that sort of an old stereotype that's gone by the wayside or is that something that somebody needs to really kind of think about depending on what business they're in and where they do it so so that that question's interesting and I think you get different answers um, from from different people right if if you talk to people in our age range um, you know they're probably are not as educated about about these issues, but if you think in terms of the you know current generation of workers coming into the workforce, the millennials, the millennials care about this more than anything. They care about the environment more than anything because they are the ones that are going to be living in a completely different environment as they age. Right? I mean, you know, you can have a political discussion, I guess, to some extent, about whether you know. Uh, Climate change is anthropogenic or man-made, right? You can have that conversation if you want to, but at the end of the day, you cannot refute that the climate is changing and that it's affecting agriculture, it's affecting uh, refugees, right? It's affecting 
access to clean water. It's affecting transportation systems. It's affecting our entire global ecosystem, right? So, so and public health and public health. Public health is a really big issue that that really people should be focusing on, but they don't. Um, you know, I was just reading an article yesterday that I don't know how many people died in Japan um, last week because of the heat wave, but it's 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 almost unsustainable. And so, if you think about if you're developing a workforce and you, let's just say you're Coca Cola, and you know you're hiring millennials, you know they care about your your. Uh, environmental social governance more than more than any other generation because they're the ones that are going to have to deal with the ramifications of a changing climate so uh, if you don't speak that language and you don't address their issues the next company will and so it's a recruiting issue more than anything you're not going to get the best of the best unless you are being environmentally and socially responsible not just from a greenwashing standpoint, but this is a core tenet of who we are and what we are as a company. And and greenwashing is what? I mean, greenwashing is a company saying that we're doing all these amazing, wonderful, you know, green things. But in, at the end of the day, you know, it's more of a PR campaign than it is actual programmatic impact that the corporation is having, you know, to the bottom line, right? So, um, you know, you can you can. Uh, Coca-Cola actually got pinged on this in the last few years where, where, you know, they were, they were making, um, assertions in the global media that, uh, they were addressing water shortage issues and water quality issues all over the world. And it, when it came down to, um, a lot of third party independent, um, organizations that are, that are charged with understanding, uh, water scarcity issues, they realized that those issues haven't been affected at all and they haven't changed their policies and their procedures to really um, ensure that there's not a overuse of, of water uh, in the respective markets where they're operating their bottling facilities. So they took that very seriously and said, we cannot be um, looked upon in, in the, in the world as a company that, that says what they're doing and not do what they're doing, right? So that's what really greenwashing is. It's just sort of a PR campaign to say we're green just because it makes everybody feel good, but you can't you can't sit down and put your your corporate sustainability report out and and have confirmed metrics by a reputable third-party organization. Now you touched on something that harkens back to a conversation we had before we hit the record button that I want to come back to, which is it's not just about millennials anymore either. The capital markets are now paying a lot of attention to this. I read an article recently where I think something like 78% of Wall Street analysts now are factoring in the impact of climate change Absolutely. in their valuation models. But do you know why? Because, I, because, I may or may not. Tell me. But because of the global insurance market, right? I mean, uh, insurance drives everything, right? Yep. And if you can't insure a business, there is no business, right? And And so the insurance markets are basically saying, hey, this climate change thing is real. It's now. It's not something that's coming 10, 20, 30 years from now. Like we're experiencing impacts of it right now. And if we don't start addressing this issue, we're not going to be able to insure businesses. And if we can't insure a business, they cannot operate. Right. So, but you mentioned, you know, financial, um, you know, aspects of, of this whole industry. And, and we talked briefly about this prior to the, prior to the start of the, of the podcast. But, you know, you take an organization like, BlackRock, right? I think they're the largest financial management company in the world. They have several trillion dollars under management. Their CEO last year, Larry Fink, put out a directive to all of their uh, associates uh, globally and said, 
you know, you guys better start taking environmental and social governance seriously. And if you don't, and you don't have verifiable, you know, third party validation of what you're doing regarding ESG, you're highly likely not going to get capital from us again. And it, it's weird because, you know, BlackRock still funds coal plants and they still fund natural gas and they still fund oil and gas. And so you can't just turn on a dime, right? This is a, this is a battleship. It, 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 it takes a very slow curve, mm-hmm. uh, to change direction. But when it comes top down from the CEO saying, you guys better take this seriously or you're not going to get capital. You know, I don't care how big of a company you are. Apple has probably more cash than anybody in the world and they're constantly borrowing money because debt is cheap. You know, they don't want to use their own capital when they can get 2% money from the bond market. Sure. Well, you're not going to get, you're not going to get that bond market money if you don't have a, a serious commitment, a verifiable commitment to environmental and social governance all throughout your organization. And, and part of that goes back to the insurability, right? You're not going to get 2% money. No way. If you're not insured. No way. Right. You suddenly go from a, well, you a can't bank even operate. Deal. Right. You cannot operate. I mean, I was working on a, on a, a new business model. Just last year, trying to help Native American uh, tribes um, do some interesting things um, that their um, their laws, uh, their sovereignty allows them to do, and unfortunately, we could not get uh, the tribe insured. And we we dealt with the top seventeen global insurers. I mean, all the big names in the world, and every single one of them over the course of a year said, "No, we cannot. We cannot give you a policy." And therefore, there was no business. So I have firsthand experience knowing that if you cannot get insurance, you cannot operate a business. So let, let's say we, we want to think about setting up a sustainability program for a company in a fir- for the first time. We often hear that some companies that companies have a chief sustainability officer or one individual that at least ostensibly answers for all these sustainability initiatives. Is that a requisite? Is it such a distinct skill set that even if I'm a small company, I kind of just got to bite the bullet and hire that? Or are there companies that have successfully rolled that portfolio into other responsibilities that already exist? I mean, I think it depends on the size of the company, right? So if, if you're planning on putting out a corporate sustainability report, you're going to need a CSO. Um, but if you're just a, a small to mid-sized business, you know, there are really simple things that every business can do. I mean, really simple things like, you know, reduce your energy load, right? I mean, the cheapest and easiest thing to do is to uh, address your lighting in your building, right? And the technologies are so far advanced now. And the short payback period is ridiculously low. I mean, any kind of a major LED lighting conversion in in a small office like this or a manufacturer facility, you know, two-year ROI max. A lot of them are coming in at one year. And so if you can't fund something on a one-year ROI basis, you're in the wrong business, right? Right. So, you know, there are things you can do to address your you know, your supply chain. There's things you can do to address your waste material uh, resources. There are things you can do to to address you know more sustainable transportation. I mean, there are very simple things that can be done. You don't have to have a very complex program. But what I've what I've learned in talking to companies and 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 students um, all over the South over the last couple of years about this issue is they. They want to be involved and they want to be engaged, right? So, so, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of a, <clears throat> I, I relate this not on a really, um, appropriate comparable basis, but if you th- think about XPRIZE, right? XPRIZE does these really interesting challenges, whether they're, you know, medical, whether they're, you know, lunar landings, whether they're clean energy or clean water. Um, but they, they create competitions, right? And people like to compete. 
right? It's the very nature of who we are. We always compete with each other. And so smart companies create these little sort of, you know, sustainability competitions and, and they create real incentives and real rewards, you know? So whoever wins, you know, I'm the most sustainable employee in my group for, you know, the first quarter, guess what? I get a trip and I get to go to Cancun and lay on the beach for, you know, three days with pay time off. So, I mean, you know, I think the more you can engage a, a, a sort of employee, uh, plan that allows them to feel like they're taking some responsibility and doing something that has impact. And it's not just truly a top down directive. It's literally a bottom up. Um, it, it becomes fun. You can even gamify it and really, you know, um, create teams and, 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 you know, people care about this stuff and, and they want to feel like they're having impact. That's the biggest struggle. Climate change. The biggest problem with climate change is the enormity of the scope. Every time I talk to someone who's ill-informed about climate change, I'm, I, I might as well be watching a slow motion train wreck, right? Because at the end of the day, their brain just melts down. They just like, what can I do about carbon emissions in the atmosphere? I can't go up there and grab those molecules. You know? And it's just like, if it's, if the problem's too big, people don't know how to deal with it. Right. So the good news, I think, is that sustainability is a trend that is accelerating now for, for various reasons, some of which we've spoken about today. Is there a company or organization out there you think has done a, a, a particularly good job that has some lessons to teach other companies to follow? Yeah. So, um, I didn't even know about this, um, until a few years ago when I heard a chief sustainability officer for Cox Enterprises give a presentation at Georgia Tech. I was speaking um, on clean energy and they came in and talked about corporate sustainability. And I was literally blown away at how much impact um, one of Cox Communications divisions has on sustainability. So they've got an internal group called Cox Conserves. And this is a really dynamic um, division of that communications company. Well, they're more than a communications company now. They're pretty diversified. But this organization does some extraordinary things, um, not the least of which they actually have their own budgets. So they have, you know, they've created their own uh, entrepreneurial co-working ecosystem within that organization. And they basically, instead of just saying, Hey guys, we're going to have a competition to see, uh, who drives the fewest amount of miles or who, you know, recycles the most cans. I mean, they literally say, Hey, Bob, do you have a really cool idea about how to, you know, save the planet? If so, why don't you write a little, you know, uh, executive summary and submit it to us? And if we like it, we will fund you. We will use our own internal capital resources to turn our employee into a sustainability entrepreneur. Like, you know, that kind of forward thinking is really what's going to be needed in order to, you know, make this transition because, because this problem is so big, it needs a lot of people working on it. And people don't understand that little things actually add up to big things, right? I mean, change one bulb, right? Recycle one can. You know, drive one mile less than you did yesterday. I mean, a lot of little things can add up to a big thing. And so when people say, I can't do anything, this problem's too big, that's not accurate. You mentioned something about gamification, and, and I think you're really on to something. So I, I, I drive a Volt, and, um, which is a, a serial hybrid. First, it's rated for the first 38 miles on electric. After that's a nine-gallon gas tank. <clears throat> and there's a, a very active Volt community on Facebook, Volt owners basically. And there's a competition to see how much mileage you actually can get out of that car on battery, 
right? And so people are doing all kinds of things, probably may or may <laughs> not be the safest things in the world, but they're overinflating their tires, right? right to right, like right. 48 PSI. So you, you, you go over a beanbag and you are jolted, right? Right, right, right. Um, or, you know, how much can you coast and, and, and you, you know, maybe you don't turn the air conditioner on. So, you know, the most I've ever gotten out of it was 46 miles an hour and I was miserable. I'll never try that again, <laughs> but it, it does work. Right. And, and Absolutely. I think the volts dashboard is set up for that feedback because it shows you in real time how much, how much distance you have, you have left. Right. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell from my own perspective, cause I grew up in a fossil fuel internal, internal combustion engine world. Sure. We all did because I could put gas into my car. But don't really want to. <clears throat> every day that, I, especially every day that I'm sort of at the outside of my range, I don't push put gas in my car. I don't feel like I've saved a polar bear. I just feel like I stole something for free. Sure, <laughs> that, right. And the gamification really works. It, it really does. In fact, um, you know, you know the old adage, "Everything old is new again." You you're probably old enough to have driven, you know, the original Model T, right? Almost. Uh, exactly. So you know, the original Model T was electric. I did not know that. There you go. Boom. Dropping knowledge, baby. I, I, now I did know that. I mean, there, <laughs> there were two versions of the Model T, by the way. One was electric. One was, uh, was, uh, I do know that the, at the time that, that internal combustion started to catch on, there was a competing industry than battery. And we know the history, the rest of the history. Right. Um, and, and you know, we flirted for battery for such a long time. Now it looks like we're, we're rapidly approaching battery ICE parity. We are. I mean, um, you know, two or three years ago, I think people were saying that that um, internal combustion engine uh, parity level was going to be sometime around 2030. Right. right? Now it's 2025. And then I read a report the other day where it's like 2023. Like it keeps getting shorter. And it's because um, R&D in battery technology is, you know, one of the bright shining spots of clean tech. A lot of money is flowing into battery storage and, you know, the amazing work that Tesla is doing and Panasonic is doing and others, um, you know, is, is a, is really the, the North Star. You know, it's, it's, it's where all the major successes are going to happen. And so the utility companies actually didn't see this coming. Right. And so now they've got to kind of change their whole mindset and say, Hey, you know how we were going to build this natural gas combustion, um, uh, system and we're going to generate 500, you know, megawatts of power. Well, you know, they're not really economical now that we've got battery storage. So, you know, instead of building peaker plants, these, you know, these, Co-firing plants um, are, you know, now in demand, right? And so, um, at the end of the day, battery storage gets dramatically cheaper every year. And you know, in a couple of years, none of these plants outside of solar, wind, and storage are going to be able to compete. And you know, oddly enough, I think the um, this is off topic. I'll throw it out there anyway. The 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 VW diesel scandal. I think actually moved Diesel that. Gate. Yeah, exactly. I think that moved that, that moved the needle significantly. Absolutely. Right? They, they went from ICE to electric really in a period of two and a half years. And by 2025, every model that they make will have an electric version. Yeah. Right. Every and Volvo one. is following, following got, suit. You know, that, but that fine they got was painful. It wasn't a light fine. I mean, they got 
they got punched in the mouth. And I think it, it – I mean it, I don't think it hurt him as much in America, but I think in terms of Overseas. public relations and branding, yeah. killed him in Europe. Uh, it, right? killed, it hurt him bad in Europe. That the, I think they thought I – mean, it cost the CEO's job. People, well, not only that, but people felt betrayed. Right. You know, I mean I have got a good friend of mine, uh, Lewis, here in Atlanta, who is a lifelong uh, Volvo and VW enthusiast. And he – he literally felt betrayed. He felt like he was completely lied to. And he not only sold his car, he never bought another car. Like wow. He literally got an electric bike and does public transportation and does Uber and was just so incensed by being lied to um, by that corporation, you know, that it changed his whole relationship with the brand. It ended it. That's basically breaking up with your boyfriend and keying his car on the way out. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> See ya. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I've read literature. You probably have too. There, there, there are studies now coming out that companies that have a strong sustainability posture tend to outperform others kind of in areas that aren't directly involved with sustainability as also. Have you seen that? Is there credibility or are we getting ahead of ourselves? No. So there's a um, study done last year, in, well, in 2018, that said um, – Companies that have embedded um, ESG programs um, have a valuation basis somewhere between 175 and 250 basis points better than those that don't. And I mean, I know, I know that's financial speak, right? But that's real money when you talk about, um, you know, two well, percent profit margin. Two percent profit margin is really it's a it's a big number when you talk about a lot of companies are in single digit profit margins. Yeah, if if you, you know, improve Coca Cola's profit margin by one percent, two and a half percent, it's a big deal. That, yeah. that means that's a lot more, that's a lot more electric powered private jets they're getting. When I first came to Atlanta in 2010, Coca Cola was the first company that I met with and we were working with them on some, some different recycling technology. And they literally said, if you move our profit margin by 0.5%, we will do it. That's all you had to do. I mean, that's how big of a scale global operation they had yeah. that that tremendous amount of revenue to their bottom line. And so now Coca-Cola is, you know, obviously one of the global leaders in sustainability. I mean, they, they are almost single handedly focused on, on, on water, uh, efficiency because, um, you know, look, we've got, we've got problems with a changing climate. It's not just that it's getting hotter, right? It's not just that seas are rising, but it's affecting, you know, global agriculture. It's affecting, uh, our ability to get potable water. It's affecting, you know, um, health services. It's affecting, um, you know, disease. It's, it's, it, you know, we're destroying species at a rate that's never happened in the history of mankind. And so, you know, you, you got to kind of steer the conversation away. Well, oh, well, you know, I can just turn my air conditioner up a little bit more. Who cares if it gets a little warmer? Look, you know, we've got a problem with our oceans, right? We've got a major problem with plastic in our oceans. But if you think about, you know, the biggest global carbon sink that we have is our oceans. And the more acidified those oceans become, the more it destroys uh, aquatic ecosystems. And I promise you, if you, if you haven't thought about this, a dead ocean equals a dead planet. Yep. Right. And so at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how much money you think you're going to make or how much money you need to make, you know, you will make no money on a dead planet. And so we're all, you know, not going to Mars. I mean, God bless Elon, but uh, that atmosphere is not very inviting. I'm not going to Mars. No. <laughs> so we got to we got to fix this planet, and 
you know, we owe it to, you know, the future generations. I mean, look, at the end of the day, we're all going to be here. God bless, you know, if we were healthy, call it 80 to 100 years. All right. But that's just a, it's a, it's a blink of an eye on the geologic timescale, right? And it means nothing, but we've done more damage in the last hundred years, um, you know, to our, to our uh, global ecosystems than it's ever been done in the history of the world. And so, you know, there's this old Indian proverb. It's like, um, we don't inherit the earth from our ancestors. We borrow it from our children. Hmm. Right. That's deep, like deep, like the minds of Minolta. Yeah. Deep, right. right? <laughs> Think about that for a second. So, you know, even though I don't have children, you do. Um, I care about your children just as much as I care about a child in Ethiopia or a child in India or a child in Europe. You know, it's like we owe it to them to leave this planet better off than when we found it. Or if not, just the same as, not worse. I mean, we have a responsibility for people that come after us. If we don't, you know, when it's our time to, 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 to leave this planet, um, we're not going to do it in great graces. I promise you that. So a um, couple more questions before we wrap up here. Let, let's, let's say that I'm a listener and now I'm convinced we really got to put in some kind of sustainability program. What are the first steps to think about? Well, there's this amazing new invention called the interwebs, and you I've can, heard of it. Yeah, you can get on the internet. I mean, there's so much public available information. The good news is, is that if you Google um, or search uh, corporate sustainability reports, a lot of the reports are in the public domain, and so you can you can get a report from Apple, which has a phenomenal program. You can get a report from Cox. You can get a report from Coca-Cola, from Alliance, from you know uh, major insurance companies. Um, any anyone i mean there's tons of public available data out there um you don't have to reinvent the wheel there's a lot of great case studies about things that work been proven easy to verify um not hard to implement and you know the one thing at the end of the day beyond sort of you know quote unquote trying to save the planet is the the morale impact that you will have on your employees is palpable i mean when they feel like they are actually contributing to something good, you know, and social impact is really kind of a broad, a broad umbrella, but when they feel like they're actually adding value and they can go back and look at their parents and go back and look at their kids and say, I did something, even though it's small, I did something, right? Everybody, you know, especially millennials, you know, we, we, we Gen Xers are okay with slogging for the paycheck. Millennials aren't no. quite so much into that, right? And, no, not and, at all. And maybe they're smarter than, than are we, but, but they're, they're not they're, smarter. They're just, they're just more woke, right? I mean, at the end of the day, they know they're going to be the ones living in a different, you know, environment. It's not us. I mean, yeah, to an extent, you know, if you're, if you're 50 years old in the next 30 years, you know, by 2050, you're going to see some pretty bad stuff. But 2060, 2070, 2080, I mean, you're going to see a real huge problem. And, you know, to your point earlier, when we're talking, it doesn't matter how many solar panels or how many wind, you know, turbines we put up or how many efficient lights we put in, or how many electric cars we drive. There's so much legacy carbon in our atmosphere that, you know, a few years ago, geoengineering, you know, was a, a hot topic in the scientific community about should we? It's no longer about should we? It's we're going to have to. We have to remove legacy CO2 right. or, or else. And so, you know, when you're given a, or else you better do something because right. you know it's not going anywhere i mean like you said it's it's in the atmosphere for 100 years 
Whenever, whenever, even as a kid, whenever my parents said or else, <laughs> I never thought, you know what, or else is probably the way I want to go. Exactly. Never, never works out that <laughs> give way. Give me some of that or else. Yeah, it give me that. Great. I'll have a second helping of the or else. Exactly. Uh, Troy, this has been great. Thank you so much for, for doing this. If somebody wants to contact you to learn more about this, maybe get some advice about maybe launching a program or tweaking the one they already have, can they do that? Sure. Yeah. You can contact me in my email. It's Troy, T R O Y, at massive dash tech. Dot com. All right. Well, that's going to wrap it up for today's program. And I would like to thank Troy Van Otnot so much for joining us and sharing his expertise with us today. We explore a new topic each week. So please tune in so that when you are faced with your next business decision, you have clear vision when making it. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider leaving a review with your favorite podcast aggregator. It helps people find us so that we can help them. Once again, this is Mike Blake. Our sponsor is Bradyware and Company. And this has been the Decision Vision Podcast. 